listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. our sermon series in the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 23. If you're, if you're new uh, to, to the Bible, um, that's going to be in the very first part of your Bible. Uh, it's going to be the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 23. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 uh, through 19 this morning. So Exodus chapter 23, uh, verses 10 through 19 my friends and my family in Christ, I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. For six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days, you shall do your work. But on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor." Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Can we say thanks be to God? Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to give us understanding to your word. We ask you to give us insight. We plead with you that you would transform us. We plead with you that that your spirit would unveil who you, are, who you are, unveil who Jesus is, that we might behold your glory and be changed by it, even in this moment. I don't just ask for those who are listening, Lord. I ask for myself. I need to be changed. I need to be convicted of both sin and of righteousness. And even more, I am in need 
of your grace. Our Father, hear our prayer this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, today uh, we uh, get to talk about rest. We get to talk about feasting. Now, I wonder, after a, a day off from work, or maybe multiple days off, maybe a, a three-day weekend like this weekend, have you ever wondered why you still feel exhausted when you go back into work? Or even, maybe you've said this before, I've heard somebody else say it, that you need a vacation from your vacation because you're exhausted. But also, have you ever had a celebration or a feast or a party and just hours, maybe even minutes later, you're still longing for more? Why is that? Well, I think it's because there's more to rest, there's more to resting and there's more to feasting than just the physical, the tangible, and the tasteable. There is a rest offered, the scriptures offer to us, that doesn't leave you still exhausted. There is a feast available from God that leaves you satisfied without wanting anything else. And this is what Moses, in the end of the book of the covenant here, he's inviting the Israelites to participate in this rest and this feast. He's going to display these realities and the fact that, that human beings, me and you, and, and the Israelites, we were made and we were created to first, first point, we were created to rest in God. And the second point, we were created to feast with God. And what we'll discover is that God has made us and created us to both rest and feast. But more specifically, he's made us so that we can work from our rest. And when we find that true rest, we can feast on him at any moment in the day, even while we're working. And all of this is offered to us in Christ Jesus. That when we find true rest in Christ, you'll be able to work from that rest and feast in that rest. How many of you are in need of true rest and true feasting today? Me too. So let's dive in and find out what this God has to offer to us in Christ Jesus. First point, created to rest in God. In verses 10 through 12 of chapter 23, Moses writes, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien, that's just a, a word for sojourner, foreigner, may be refreshed. And so these commands right here are an expansion of the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In the first part here, we, we see that this is a command with societal implications to rest. It doesn't just affect you, but affects others as well. Six years they're meant to work the land. We see that in verse 10. But in the seventh year, you're to let it run buck wild. Why? 
so that the poor might be able to eat for an entire year for free. After they're finished, the beasts can have their way with the land. You see, the, the farmer recognized that every six years, he, he's voluntarily releasing and surrendering ownership of the land to the land's true owner. He lets the land rest because he knows the real owner, who is God, is also the faithful provider and the true and better farmer of this land, who provides the rain, who provides the sun, who provides the clouds. See, in that seventh year, God promises to provide for the poor. But even more frequently, as we get to verse 12, we see after every six days of work, we now have a day off. They ceased from working because they know their God never ceases from working. They ceased from providing for themselves one day a week because they know God has provided every day of the week. And this is not just for the farmer and the owner of the field. It's also for the employees and the foreigners who come in to do some contract work. To Sabbath, this is what we're talking about here. Sabbath, Shabbat, means to stop. It means to cease. To put down your work. But why should they, why should we stop? Well, look at the command in Exodus 20, verse 11. The fourth command. It says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Why do we rest? It's because we are created to rest. If our creator in whose image that we were created rested on the seventh day, then we who are in his image rest as well. This is the God who brought them out of slavery, nonstop work, no break in the week, no feasting, no celebrating. But this God rested after he finished his work. The creator rests why don't we? Now, how many of you love going to get your car inspected one time a year? No one. <laughs> no one loves getting their car inspected. And it's because every time we go get our car inspected, it's, it's because the expert, right, the, the mechanic, tells us everything that they found wrong with our car. Tires are worn. Fluid's going to need changed in about 500 miles. Your oil needs changed. Your brakes are wearing thin. They're, they're looking kind of dangerous. And as they're telling us all these things, our eyes begin to glaze over, forget what they say. And they say, but you still pass the inspection. And so we ignore everything that they said. And we think that we know better. We, we think that everything's going to be fine. This is what we do at this command. When it comes to this command, we say we'll think about resting. We'll think about stopping. We'll be fine without rest. I mean, this is the only command that I've noticed Christians bragging about. Oh, I'm so busy. I haven't had a day off in two months. The creator who formed you is telling you, yes, you were created to work and create. Six days, in fact. He's not a God of laziness. But he's also telling us we are created to rest. 
And isn't it interesting that there's a difference between when God rested and when Adam and Eve, our first parents, rested? I mean, think with me. On what day did Adam and Eve, were they formed from the dust of the ground? What day? The sixth, sometime on the sixth day. Which means that after six days of work, God rested. And then on their first full day, the seventh day, God put them to work, right? No. He invited them to rest. Look what Breen and Cockrum write about this. They say, from this, we see an important principle of life. We are to work from our rest, not rest from our work. Rest from the beginning was the starting point for all humans, all image bearers. God established this from the beginning. You rest, then you work. You work from your rest, not for rest. And this is deeper than just physical rest. This is deep soul rest into reality that he is God and that we are not. He is the provider. We are not. And nothing else is. Rest is an act of worship because rest is all about the creator of rest, God. This is why we see in verse 13 Moses continues this command. He says, Pay attention to all that I've said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. I wonder what gods might be coming off of your lips. Do we trust him as the provider when we cease providing? Or do we trust ourselves and our ability to provide for the future and where we think we're able to control the future. See, what would cause someone not to take a day off? It's fear. It's fear that we won't be provided for. It's fear that we won't have the control that we think that we have. See, what we must recognize is that there is a work going on underneath our work. This is true in the marketplace and true in the home. See, what we ultimately fear is that if we stop spinning all the plates of our little worlds and our little creations, our little kingdoms and queendoms, then our kingdoms and queendoms will fall apart. Most of us, we even try to become like God when we try to do everything Or worse, we force others to do things for us so that we can still feel like we're in some aspect of control. And even, tell me if you can resonate with this, even after the work hours are over, that same work that's going on underneath our work appears on a little thing called social media so that we can prove that we are something to someone. And here's the lie that we believe, that we have to keep working to maintain our identity and our relationships. And that if we don't keep working, we will lose our identity and lose our relationships. 
But this God who's created you for a relationship with him has invited you to rest, to put your work down, even the work that's going on underneath the work, so that your identity can be found in him alone, so that you can work from that identity that was given to you, that identity that now defines your relationship with him. And if you're in Christ, You don't have to work for an identity. You rest in your identity in Jesus. And from knowing who you are, you know whose you are. That that relationship will never end. You don't have to work for it. It's provided in full in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is not an identity you work for, but identity you rest in and then work from. God has created you to rest. But second point, he's also created you to feast with God. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 23, we read, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labors, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So there's this beautiful connection between verses 10 through 13 and 14 through 17. 10 through 13, Moses is letting you know and me know that I do not control my work schedule. And in verses 14 through 17, he's letting us know that we do not control our worship schedule. God is setting up rhythms for both work and worship, resting and feasting. These feasts were a a celebration, a celebration in response to what God had done in the past. Now, since this passage doesn't go into great detail about these feasts, neither will we. So we'll just do a flyover of what they are. The first feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 15. This was to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate their exodus and the redemption from slavery. This happened around what would be our month of April. The second one was in verse 16. This was the Feast of the Actual Harvest, where they picked everything. That would happen late May, early June. And then the third in verse 17 was the ingathering, all the processing and storing of the entire yield. That would happen end of September, October. And these feasts were not merely these nice little dinner parties. They were days, mostly weeks, of joyful voices, festive music, dancing, abundant food, and abundant, strong beverages. They were more than a party. They were a celebration and worship of what God has done for them as a redeemer in Egypt and a provider in the wilderness. And now, we, what might seem strange are these, these passages that come in verses 18 and 19. They seem out of place, but they would have been completely normal to an ancient Near Eastern culture like Israel. I mean, what are we to do with these commands about blood and leaven and fat left until the morning? Well, well, first of all, that is a sin in my books because the fat of the meat is the most delicious part of the meat. 
and then boiling a young goat in the milk that was supposed to be sustaining him? What, what is this all about? Well, these were Canaanite ritual practices that involved the ritual worship of Canaanite gods. See, the purpose of these laws, one of the purpose of these laws was to separate Israel from the surrounding nations. Who was in the promised land they were headed towards? Canaan. What does this mean? God's feasts were meant to be parties, celebrations that set them apart from the nations. Because God is unlike any other God. There are no gods like Yahweh. He is supreme. He alone is God. He is majestic in holiness. He is glorious in all of his splendor. And since God is holy and set apart, then his people must be holy and set apart by the way that they celebrate and keep these feasts. And these are just three of the feasts. Y'all think God is boring. God parties in the Old Testament. This is three of many feasts. When you read all of the Pentateuch, they just keep adding up and up and up. And you're wondering, when do they get any work done? Because you know what you could not do when you participated in these feasts? Since they were all day celebrations? You could not work. Feasting with God, with God's people, went hand in hand with resting with God and his people. You can't feast if you don't know how to rest. You can't feast on who God is until you first know how to rest with God. And it says that the males, in verse 17, the heads of the households, they were to lead the way. These men were to be representatives of the families and communities, and they would bring offerings, not to get God to love them more, but because they were responding to what God has done for them. They put down their work so they can go and worship. And so, can I just talk to the men, the dads in particular for a moment? I mean, how, how many of y'all, when you were younger, you just wanted to be like your dad? Even when I watch my son, even my daughters, they wanted, they want to be like me. And I remember I learned life, not, not merely through what my dad told me, but mostly by what he showed me. You know what this means? That leading my family, discipling my family is not just about what I tell them to do and tell them what to believe or how to behave. It's more of showing them. So, men, what do your families see you feasting on? They want to be like you. What do your kids see you celebrating? They want to be like dad. When do they see you, if at all, putting down your work so that you can be with them? And when you're with them, what do they see you feasting? Are you feasting with God, with them? They want to be like dad. 
And this just isn't for the heads of the households to participate. And yes, they are meant to lead the way, offer those first offerings. But every man, woman, and child, married, singled, young, old, all of them were to come and feast. But they could not feast if they did not know how to rest. Now, our culture has a rhythm of feasts, maybe. We call them vacations. But if you look at the polls, like I, like I read um, maybe about a year ago in Forbes magazine, only 23% use all their vacation days. It's one in four, or 23 out of 100. The average employee takes about half of their vacation days. And when people do vacation, two-thirds still admit to working while on vacation. That's 66 people out of 100 people are still working while they're vacationing, while they're resting. Why? Well, this article showed that it's fear that keeps them working. Fear from falling behind on projects. Fear from disappointing superiors. That if they don't continue working, if they don't get the job done, who will? And some even fear losing the image, the identity that their job afforded them. Whether you're a Christian or, or not here today, fear has to do with trust. And trust has everything to do with worship. We continue to work because we've ceased to trust the one who has promised to provide everything for us. My dear friend Rusty Mackey in his, his book on sabbaticals writes this, workaholism is ultimately a worship problem. Let me say that one more time. Workaholism is ultimately a worship problem. Like we said earlier, there is a work that goes on underneath the work that you are doing. Meaning, it's not just your actions, it's the motivations behind them. And so what do you want? What are you wanting when you want to keep working? What do you want when you can't stop working? For most of us, it's an identity. We want an identity that pleases others. We want a, a worth that proves that we're worth something to others to be around. We want to be of value so that we can impress others. This is this little G, false God, that continues to come off our lips, but that keeps enslaving us. This little G God is incredibly fragile. For once you stop working, it ceases to exist. And you'll keep working, even at the expense of being loved by others and even loving others. But maybe you don't struggle with resting and feasting. You claim to be good at resting and feasting. But, but I think if, if we're honest, what we might describe as feasting is really escapism. It's masquerading as escapism. 
mean, when you run to movies and hobbies and parties and food and leisure, are you seeking the Lord through those things? I mean, most of the time we're seeking a satisfaction that is so elusive. We're not really running after those things to feast with God, but rather we become gluttons of the created, not the creator. What we're doing is we're looking for this ongoing, eternal pleasure and satisfaction that can never be found in the created world. And if I'm honest, everything I just said sums up my life. This is my story. I work my tail off so that others aren't disappointed. So that I'm not labeled as the failure in the family or the failure in the community. But the moment my work stops, you know what I'm left with? My thoughts and my emotions that I'm not enough, that don't measure up, that I should be something more. And what I do at that point is not deal with them or take them to the Lord. I escape and run to things that will help me to forget about those thoughts and emotions, that work that's underneath the work. Because I'm deeply terrified that if I don't keep working, then I will not be loved. I wonder what it is for you. For me, it's fear. Maybe for you, it's guilt. Maybe it's shame. But what will conquer that fear, conquer that guilt, conquer that shame so that we can find rest, so that we can truly feast? It's this. It's to remember. It's to remember that we are not defined by our behavior, but we are defined by the blood-bought sacrifice of our Savior. You see, these feasts were celebrations to do what? To remember. To remember that God is Redeemer and to remember that God is the Provider. That he's, he's going to do all that he said that he's going to do. See, fear is fueled by forgetfulness. These celebrations were moments where the people of God were able to put off their forgetfulness and to remember who God is and who they were in relationship to him. Why could these people cease their work? So they could celebrate these feasts, and more specifically, the feast of the unleavened bread. Remember, for 400 years, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. Work hours turned into work days. Work days turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months, months into years, and years turned into generations with no day off and no days of feasting. And God created these reminders so that they would remember that they did not have to work in order for him to save them. But he did the work to save them because he loved them first. And in the same way, God has set us up with reminders. See, all these feasts and all these Sabbaths in the Old Testament were merely just symbols. They were signs pointing forward to what God was going to do through the Messiah, that he would one day come to free us from the greatest enslavement of our lives, the enslavement of our fear that leads to control, an enslavement of trying to work to create our own self 
an identity. He's come to free you from that false identity so that you can truly rest in what he has done for you. Enter Jesus Christ, who calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. This Lord of the Sabbath, on one dreadful night, the night that he was betrayed, he took his disciples to an upper room for a feast. And what was that feast? It was the feast of the unleavened bread. And he redefined this feast. He came to fulfill not just the Sabbath, but all these feasts. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he says, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant and it's sealed with the shedding of my blood. For as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you are announcing my death until I return. And now Jesus invites us to feast, to celebrate the joy of our salvation because Jesus comes to be the fulfillment as the true and better Passover lamb, the innocent lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ provided the work that we could not do, the work necessary for our salvation and our redemption. He did this so that our fear, our fear of ever measuring up to God, wondering, will God love me if he knew who I was? Would God love me if he has known what I have done? And the answer is yes, because he sent Christ Jesus, truly God, truly man on Christ when he was on the cross. He took our false identity. He took our fear, guilt, and shame that we've worked so hard to cover up by creating a new self, to cover up all of our failures. He placed it on himself. And when we put our faith in him, in his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection, we now get his identity, a beloved child of God, where we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear if God will love us because once we have that our identity, that will always be our identity and that will always be our relationship and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And Jesus has freed us to enter into this rest, this true soul rest. Well, how? Well, it's because he lost something so that we can gain something. On the cross, he gave up his rest, the rest that he found in the love and acceptance and approval of God. And instead, he experienced the turmoil of unrest, the consequence of our sin in our place. See, in creation, God worked. And when he finished his work, he declared it good, and then he rested. On the cross, Jesus finished the work of recreation, our salvation. He declares it is finished so that we can be declared good and righteous. He says, come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And like God declared that seventh day holy, when you put your faith and trust and repent of your sin, repent of your fear, repent of those false identities, and turn to Jesus, just like he declared that seventh day holy, he will make you holy. You see, the antidote to your spiritual and emotional exhaustion is not a physical rest. The antidote is to be made whole again 
through Christ Jesus. Friends, we don't need to work for an identity. We get to rest in the one offered to us by Jesus. We don't have to work for our approval from God. We get to rest in the fact that we're already approved of by God. We don't have to work for our love. We get to rest in that love. And then we get to work and feast from that identity, approval, and love. As we come to a close today, it's, it's when we know this, we're able to do three things as we rest and we feast. See, when we know this, we're first able to commune with God because we know that all rest and all feasting is meant to point us to God. That Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. God is the one who offers us this feast to taste and see that he is good. That we, whatever we do, whether we eat or we drink, it's not merely about what we taste, but it's more about how we do those things for the glory of God. The second thing is community with God's people. Both resting and feasting is a community project. That we're meant to do this together, experience this together. That's why we, when we gather in person, we're able to gather around the Lord's Supper, the symbol of the new covenant, and we get to feast. This used to be a, a feast that the early church uh, got to participate in every single Sunday with one another. And now we have this symbol to remind us that this is a community project as we seek communion with God. But finally, this is a way that we are commissioned to the world because this rest and this feast, remember what I said? It's meant to set us apart from all other nations. We do this in response to what God has done so that when they see the hope that we have both in our resting and our feasting, they might ask us to give a defense of why we believe what we believe. And we can offer them the same rest in Christ Jesus. See, resting and feasting points us back to what Christ has done on the cross. But it also declares a future reality that one day the groom, Christ Jesus, is going to return for his bride. And we are going to rest and we're going to feast with him at the banquet table of the bride and the groom, Christ and his church reuniting heaven and earth reuniting because he has come to make all things new so that we will be at rest with God and we will feast with God for all eternity. My friends, my family in Christ, you were created to work from your rest and that when you rest, you are invited to feast with God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. Thank you that you are God 